We're so thrilled. Here, look, he's coming in. He sees us. He's some rescue at last. And I look back at that today, and I think, Lord, uh, I'm yours. I see that plane coming for me. Back then, I think of uh, the Lord that's coming for me. On this Veterans Day weekend, a first-person story of World War II heroism as we talk with decorated U.S. Marine veteran Edgar Harrell. He's a survivor of the sinking of the U.S. Indianapolis, one of the few who remained alive four and a half days in the shark-infested oil-slick waters of the Pacific while the Navy had no idea the ship had been sunk. I'm Wayne Shepard. Welcome to First Person. During the war, the Indianapolis was given a secret mission to deliver the atomic bombs to an air base in the Pacific. A young Marine named Edgar Hare was assigned to guard the crates, although he didn't know what was inside. After completing the delivery, his ship was sunk by the Japanese. Seventy-two years later, just this past August, it was announced that the Indianapolis was finally found 18,000 feet below the surface. Marine Corporal Harrell survived that ordeal and tells us his first-person story. I grew up as a country boy in Kentucky during the Depression. I had an older, younger sister and, and six younger brothers when I went into the Marine Corps in 1943. Were you a farming family? What did your dad do? Uh, yes, farming, and uh, so I grew up on the farm. I knew how to work. Uh-huh. So the war comes along, and how old are you, and what what made you, uh, did you sign up? Uh, uh, yes, I volunteered for uh, service. Uh, actually, I had a, a deferment with my granddad. He wanted me to help put out the crop because we were in what was the Tennessee Valley Authority project that they were putting a dam on the Tennessee River, and so they're taking all the farmland. Mm-hmm. And my granddad said, uh, Ed, why don't you uh, stay with me the, the last year, the last summer, and help put out a crop before they moved us out. And So you enlisted at how old? Uh, I was 18 years old. A- as an 18-year-old boy, uh, uh, we were hearing all about the war in the Pacific and uh, uh, you know, many, many boys were losing their lives. And, and I tell my dad, I, I, I want to get in the Marine Corps. Uh, yes, we were patriotic very much as a, as a family. And mm-hmm. so here I am in the Marine Corps. And then they send me to uh, San Diego for a boot camp. And I got through boot camp. They said, uh, uh, you're going to go to sea school. Well, what's sea school? And I needed schooling. <laughs> And so, uh, not too many oceans in Kentucky, are there? <laughs> no. And, uh, so, um, anyway, uh, I think after six weeks of sea schooling, then they sent me up to San Francisco and they said, you'll, you'll catch a large combatant ship. Well, I get up there and I guess, uh, you know, there's no large combatant ship. And I, I kind of served some guard duty at, at what they call Yerba Burma Island for some, some of our own boys that kind of got in a little trouble maybe for, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so. And then one day they said, you're going down to a certain place there in the dock in San Francisco, and there was the Indianapolis. And So the Indianapolis was the first ship. Yeah, my first ship. And so that's to be my home then for the rest, uh, rest of the war. Was there a, a mission before uh, delivering the atomic bombs? Was there a oh, mission that happened oh, before yes. that? Okay, I'll go aboard um, probably in... Uh, maybe in March of 44, and we were right in the middle of combat. The Indianapolis had already already had uh, four battle 
star, so to speak, okay. and I joined them. And uh, my first combat was, uh, well, anyway, talking the Kwajalein Islands. And then I was at Sampan, Tinian, Guam, Sea Battle of the Philippine Seas, where we shot down, our task force shot down, I think it was 403 enemy aircraft mm. that day. And then from there, we were down at Peleliu or Palu. Then I was at Iwo Jima. I was at Okinawa. Three-hour strikes on Tokyo. And lastly, then uh, I was a Marine guard that guarded Fat Man yeah. and Little Boy, the components of the two atomic bombs that later would be dropped at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We'll get to that part of the story in a few minutes, but I'm I'm just... Um, astounded, all that experience, all that battle experience. I mean, you're you're young, and you're going through that. Do you remember those feelings? Do you remember being frightened, or what? What were the feelings you had? I'm not naive to think that I didn't consider it, but I I, I think I had had in mind that you know I'm trained to do a job aboard ship. I'm still trained to uh, man five inch guns and forty millimeter guns. Uh, and had the uh, honor of serving as the Captain McBay's uh, orderly. So uh, I'm busy, 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 and there's not time, you know, to look inwardly, I guess. And, uh, you were just and, doing a job. Yeah, I'm I'm doing a job. Wow. And and I was, I, I was at peace with myself, feeling that, uh, you know, I'm contributing anyhow, and— uh, uh, Mr. Harold, before we go any further, I got to ask you about what you're wearing on your coat pocket here. Tell me about this uh, this medal here. Well, um, the Indianapolis, uh, I think, achieved uh, ten battle stars, but six of them was after I came aboard. So uh, I'm wearing uh, uh, the bronze and the silver there, which represent uh, one and uh, and five hmm. or six in total. And then uh, I guess uh, I've got uh, one would be uh, uh, Marine Corps, one would be uh, a Pacific Theater, one would be uh, combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later then, this gets way ahead of our story, but later uh, because of miscarriage of justice on the part of the Navy and the court-martial of a good captain, uh, because of that, we were awarded uh, um, oh, it was a Navy commendation and the Presidential Unit Citation. Okay. so Is uh, that the one on the very top there that I see? one of those, yeah. right. Yeah. All right, so you find yourself on the USS Indianapolis. It's World War II. You've seen battle, and now uh, comes that fateful uh, trip into the Pacific, carrying those crates with those. Did you know what was in those crates? No. No, we had been at Okinawa, and there we received a kamikaze plane. We lost, uh, I believe we lost nine boys. Several were injured, and a big gaping hole through the all the way through the ship, and we had to come back to the States for repair. And we made it back in our own power, and we got repaired and put on, I think they put on some new uh, uh, gunnery equipment and so on, and... Uh, all of a sudden, one morning, we uh, saw that we were getting ready to do something other. What? I looked out on the dock, and there was a lot of Navy, Marine, brass. and um, Not your normal we, stevedores there. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and we we noticed a big crate out there. And, uh, well, that didn't bother us much. But then we saw our big crane reach over and get that and put it on the quarter deck. And uh, my Marine captain said, Harold, I want you to station a guard in the port hangar deck. 
Well, why we have, Doc, uh, Captain Park? He said, we don't know. Don't know why we're guarding? He said, no, we don't, we don't know. The skipper of the ship doesn't know. Hmm. I looked at that big crate, and I, I can see it today. When you see the screws that fastened that together, they were countersunk and waxed over. And that, you know, kind of looked a little odd. They didn't want anybody messing with it, did they? Yeah. And then there was a couple of proposed to be Navy or Air Force. Our Air Force officers came aboard. They had Air Force uniforms. And we thought that's odd, you know. And then we saw that they had a little uh, little uh, metal cage-like crate, a padlock on it. And they set that on the quarter deck. And a couple of sailors had an iron rod. And they kind of put that in that, put it on their shoulders. And they take it up to the forward area, to a stateroom, and... And Captain Park said, Harold, why don't you station the guard on the outside of the hatch? And, okay, so I stationed a guard there. And momentarily then there was a couple of sailors that came up with something like a blow torch or welding torch. And, and they fastened a piece of metal to the deck over that crate and down on the other side. They were not going to lose that. And we were told that anything happened to the ship, whatever happens, don't allow this to get lost. So that tells us that we got a hot potato mm-hmm. anyhow mm-hmm. uh now we uh, I, I guess we are ready to get on the way uh so uh it was on the 16th of uh, 16th of July 1945 now we're going to head as we were told to Tinian Island some 5300 mile and with a cargo we don't know what we have you are actually guarding the crates right. that held the atomic bombs. We had we had two guards uh, that were guarding the big crate in the the port hangar deck and the outside of the hatch. It goes into an unused uh, one of uh, Captain uh, uh, Admiral Spruance's cabins, and those two men were in there. And so now we get underway, and uh, uh, we have uh, some fifty three hundred mile to go to Tinian Island. We understood, my, in fact, my Marine captain said, the, the only thing that we are suspicious of is the fact that they tell us that every hour that we delay will um, will cost lives. Really? So, you know, I mean, anyone knows that, you know, you got a hot potato if that's the case. But I might say that the big explosion at White Sands Desert had not been uh, set off yet. In fact, it was set off that morning and the story is told, and I don't know how much factual truth behind it, but that as we were going under the Golden Gate Bridge with our cargo, that had that explosion, which happened nearly at that precise time, had it not been successful, we would not have made the voyage. Mm. Now, there was only a few that knew what we had. So that's and how of course, critical. Those, those two men aboard were scientists from Los Alamos. I see. And they knew what they had, and they knew what was in the big crate. We'll continue to talk with Edgar Harrell, a survivor of the USS Indianapolis, coming up on First Person. This program is supported each week by the Far East Broadcasting Company. And I'm Ed Cannon, the president of FEBC. These first-person stories of God at work in people's lives always encourage me. And at FEBC, we want to encourage you even more with God's Word. Take a moment to sign up for our daily online 30-day devotional 
featuring stories and scripture. You can sign up easily at firstpersoninterview.com. Go there today, firstpersoninterview.com. My guest is Edgar Harrell, a World War II survivor of the USS Indianapolis that was sunk by the Japanese. He continues his story. Three days then out of Guam, uh, sure enough, Seb was out there, Commander Hoshimoto, was waiting somewhat at the crossroads. He hadn't been successful in getting a a combatant ship the whole war. And um, so he was eager. And he surmised that all he would have to do is just wait, and sooner or later someone would oblige. We have no underwater sound gear. He does. And he could put his little periscope up, and he picked us up, let's say, 10 miles out. And so, uh, anyway, he announced to his crew to, uh, you know, load six torpedoes. The first one cut the bow of the ship off. When I said he cut the bow of the ship off, I was there. I know. I was sleeping under the barrels of number one turret. Mm. And I I would surmise that uh, 35, 40 feet of the bow, that long, sleek bow was actually cut off. And being cut off, it was cut off all the way down, which is nearly three decks deep there. You saw and that with your own eyes. I saw that. Well, I saw it to the extent that I, I'm close enough that I can say uh, the bow, there's no more bow there. It's off. It's about 35 feet wide at that point. And then the second torpedo is back close to the Marine compartment and no doubt a big gaping hole there. But no one lived to tell about, about that mm-hmm. because all the water that rushed in, if you were there, you know, you were wiped out. I, I realized immediately that the bow is off and you could hear the bulkheads breaking because uh, here we're moving, say, 17 knots or like 15 mile an hour, and all that water is coming in, and and uh, and it coming in. You hear the bulkheads breaking and so on, and I I could hear the death blow, mm. and I realized that I've got to get back to uh, midship, and um, preparing to go back. All I've got is a blanket, and I. I got out of that blanket. I still have my clothing on. I'm sleeping in my clothing. And uh, as I started aft, there were those that were coming out of the forward area on the main deck, and that was more officers' quarters. And as many of those officers were coming out, you could see that they were in their night clothing, maybe just a pair of skivvies, and many of them were flash-burned. And uh, in some cases, the flesh was hanging off their arms. And off their body, and um, they're pleading for someone to help them. But uh, I knew that I'm to make my way to my to the quarterdeck to receive orders from my marine lieutenant. Now, normal times, if we're in combat, you know that's what you do. Anytime you in combat, you go to your prepared station, you know, and received orders to do. So I, before I get to the quarterdeck, now I realize that I don't have a, I don't have a cape jacket. It's down in my locker. And uh, is that serve like a life preserver? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, oftentimes I say it's a, like a horse collar made out of kapok as a flotation device that you wear as a vest. Huh. But mine was in my locker, and I get to the quarterdeck. I asked Lieutenant Stoffer permission to cut down a new supply of kapok jackets hanging on the up on the deck, and uh, he said, "Not until we get word to abandon ship." Well, the ship is sinking even by now. If you can visualize that on the quarterdeck, normally on the starboard side, we would be eight feet above waterline, but the ship is listing even now so much to the starboard that there's water on the quarterdeck. And then I saw 
uh, a Navy commander come through the hatch, and as I saw him come through, I recognized who he was. And uh, he was flash burned, and some sailor hollered out, get the commander a life jacket. So they began to cut those down, and I managed to reach in and, and get me a life jacket and put it on like a vest. So the ship is going down, and you managed to snag a life jacket, but you find yourself in the wall. How many, how many men were on board that ship? Okay, there were 1,197 men aboard. Just three short of 1,200 right. men. And uh, how many do you think were th- thrown into the water who survived well, the we, initial torpedoes? We surmise that when word trickled down to abandon ship, I made my way to the to the port side, the high side, and looked out into the blackness of the night and looked out into that, they said it was a half inch of oil on the water. And uh, we surmise that maybe 900 boys maybe abandoned ship and left the ship. If that is the case, uh, then maybe 300 were uh, were drowned nearly immediately yeah. below, or they didn't get off the ship. Those that got off, then uh, we're going to be out there four and a half days. And I recall that I hung on to that rail looking out into the blackness of the night, knowing that uh, this this may be the end of life. Hmm. And I stepped over the rail after I said my prayers. Now, I'll tell you, I I felt somehow, some way, the assurance that I'm going to make it. Now, I didn't know I was going to be out there, you know, five days, but I, I felt that the Lord was speaking to me through his word, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Peace I give unto you, not as the world give I give unto you, but uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Well, I can't say that I wasn't afraid, but I really felt uh, confident that I'm going to make it. Now, certainly I had no no thought of being out there four and a half days. So but, I you, leave. but you know the, you knew those scriptures. Yes, I knew those so scriptures. So you, you knew the Lord. You loved yeah. the Lord. And uh, I, I like to say that the Lord spoke to me. Now, I didn't see any, uh, you know— visage or anything of uh, of the Lord or anything. But immediately as I prayed, I I know that the Lord just brought those scriptures to mind. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I, I want to say, thank you, Lord. And, uh, you know, peace I give unto you. Well, anyway, I leave the ship, swim out then uh, to some bodies out there, maybe about 80 of us. There's two other Marines. Many of them didn't have Kapok jackets. And, uh, of course, uh, the other big thing that we had after the first day was sharks, sharks, sharks. And uh, many boys would be mauled by sharks the next. You, you circled up in the water, and you'd see men disappear as they were tugged under by the sharks? Oh, yes. Yeah, many times. But you could imagine if you see big dorsal fins cutting through the water all around uh you know, maybe 60, 80 boys, and uh, uh, some then maybe had drank some salt water, oh. or maybe uh, they had uh, swallowed some salt water, and then they're beginning to hallucinate, and all of a sudden they uh, surmise that they see uh, an oasis out there, and they're going to swim out to their imaginary oasis, and they leave the group, and you hear a blood-curdling scream, and you look, and you see uh, that Kapok jacket go under, and after a little bit, uh, like a fish cork, it brings the body back up. You dare not to go out there because you see all kinds of fins coming around the blood. And uh, it's sometime later before you maybe ever come up to that body and, and really check to see who it might be and take off maybe his dog tags. Mm. 
And so that's going to happen many, many times. Uh, by the second day, if you could uh, just imagine you're swimming in, in 110 degree weather, bareheaded, and you're so thirsty. Not only are you swimming, but the, the temperature too. And, and we would see boys maybe uh, tear off some of their clothing and strain some of the salt water and drink a little bit and try to tell you that's not bad. You know, it's 85 degree water or so, and it's wet. And, uh, but within the hour, you begin to see what's taking place. Mm-hmm. They begin to lose it, and they even could become your enemy thinking that you have a hidden canteen of water in your cape jacket, and maybe they would take out their sheath knife and stab a buddy, oh. and then the more blood and so on. I, I think different ones says, any of you can pray. We've got to pray that we aren't going to make it. There's only 17 of us. So we had a we had a prayer meeting. Is that right? And what was that like? Well, it's pouring out your heart to the Lord. And I recall this one boy, uh, God, if you're out there, I don't want to die. I've got a son back home that I've never seen. And uh, so he was praying. Uh, he may not have known in person the the Lord that he was praying to, but he certainly was praying. And uh, any of us that would pray audibly would be asked to pray and various things of their families back home and so on. Everyone, it was the hope that we had of making it. And the families, it was a calling card, you know, for us to to pray and desire to, to go home. But Let me break in here and say that soon after that prayer meeting, a plane appeared, a plane not even looking for survivors since the Navy didn't know the ship had gone down. However, in God's timing, the pilot of that plane happened to notice something shining on the ocean surface, which led to the rescue. Time doesn't permit us to tell the whole story today. It's in Mr. Harrell's book. But let me return to our conversation as I ask him if he ever thinks about the moment of that rescue. I look back at that, and here we're just, uh, we're so thrilled. Here, look, he's coming in. He sees us. He's some rescue at last. And I look back at that today, and I I think, Lord, uh, I'm yours. I gave my heart and life to you back December, or August the 1st, 1943, and uh, you were with me through those years, and uh, I see that plane coming for me. Back then, I think of uh, the Lord that's coming for me one of these days, and I, I, I expect the Lord to come. I've, I really thought that the Lord would come in my life, and as I look at our world today, I'm still convinced that He's on his way, and he could be here at any time. He may come during your lifetime. he may come during my life. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for your service. So many men didn't come home from that war, but uh, God brought you through it. We're so happy you did, and we do thank you sincerely for your service for our country and your service for our Lord all these years. Fine. Thank you, sir. It's been a delight to be with you today. The conversation you've just heard took place a few years ago, but I just spoke with Edgar Harrell on the phone a few days ago. He's now 93 years old, and he and his wife of 70 years are still serving the Lord as he speaks around the country and tells the story of the USS Indianapolis. Be sure to thank a veteran for service to their country this weekend. This first-person interview is made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company. To thank FEBC, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com, and sign up for the free online devotional, which combines scripture and listener stories and is delivered automatically to your inbox every day for a month. Sign up at firstpersoninterview.com. 
Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. <laughs>